Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Kei Kimaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Director of the Carter Center's Conflict Resolution Program, Stacia George, breaks down the tools we need to address conflict and terrorism. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast this time. It will be archived on our website, mainpublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Stacia today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. I'd like to welcome everyone here and those listening to us on the stations of Maine Public Radio to the 444th meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations. Today's meeting comes to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, Maine, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was founded in 1983 to invite a foreign affairs expert each month to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. Audios of past forum talks and information on un- upcoming forum programs are available on our website at midcoastforum.org. If you want to become a member of the forum, you will also find our membership form on the website. To join, just apply. We're pleased today to have Stacia George with us to speak on winning without weapons, the tools we have to address conflict and terrorism. Given the sanctions and other financial tools that we are now using to punish Russia for its ongoing invasion of Ukraine, it's particularly nice to have Ms. George here to speak about the non-warfare tools that are available and where they might be applicable. Stacia George became director of the Carter Center, Carter Center's Conflict Resolution Program in 2021. Before joining the Carter Center, she was the director for West and Central Africa and Haiti at Chamonics International Incorporated, a global implementer of international development assistance. Ms. George previously served as the deputy director for the United States Agency for International Development's Office of Transition Initiatives. She is an expert in conflict management and international development with specializations in in conflict-affected environments, stabilization, democracy, and community-driven development programming. That's a mouthful. During her 11 years with the Agency for International Development, Ms. George was country representative for programs in the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan, Pakistan, managed the Afghanistan program as the deputy team leader for Asia and the Middle East, established programs in Colombia, Nepal, and Sudan, and served as the country representative in the Democratic Republic of of Congo. Earlier, she was a policy fellow on the Africa subcommittee of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was the practice director for government services at Cirrus Associates. She held an International Affairs Fellowship from the Council of Foreign Relations in 2021. Ms. George holds degrees in International Studies in Spanish from Niagara University and International Conflict Management and Economics from the John Hopkins School of Advanced and International Studies. Stacia, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Midcoast Forum. Thank you, George. I was tired listening to that intro. 
<laughs> so thank you to everyone here for hosting uh, me here at the forum, as well as those of you listening online. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as noted, you might have heard a theme in my career where I've really focused on addressing violence. That's terrorism, terrorists, organized crime, gangs, militias, state-on-state -state violence, dictators. This is, this is where my passion has been. Uh, and when people talk about terrorism and terrorists, and what do we do about it, frequently there's a common theme uh, that comes up. You know, we have to kill them, we have to jail them. Those are the frequent themes that you hear about. Um, and I'm, I'm here to talk about the broader, the broader toolbox, but I want to even start just with those themes of, that you frequently hear. So let's say that, um, let's just talk about targeting. Um, of terrorism, if you want to target a particular terrorist. You might be able to target an individual or leader in a terrorist organization, but unless you have actually ensured that you're addressing the issues for why people are joining that group in the per first place, as well as ensured that there's not others in the group uh, to take over, you're really just disrupting that organization for a quick moment. Others are just gonna come in and fill that void quickly. In addition, the tactics you use might actually exacerbate the situation. Um, if there are, for example, civilian casualties, that actually could be used for recruiting people into the organization by using, in the case of US tactics, for example, anti-American sentiment. And as you, you can hear, read a lot about this in, for example, Dave Kilcullen's book, The Accidental Guerrilla, um, where sometimes we accidentally create the conditions which make the problem we're trying to solve worse. The other issue with targeting is it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of analysis, it takes resources frequently on the ground, and it has risks, financial as well as human risks that come with it. So, and I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for that, I'm gonna, I'll talk about that when I circle back around to, to explain the whole tool, toolbox, but it's for specific circumstances. Let's talk about jailing for a moment. Let's say that that's much easier. Just find, capture them, prosecute. In many of the places around the world where we're, we have partners, where we're trying to address terrorism threats, it's not just our systems in the US that we use to be able to do that. So let's say we have military or police that we need to use to go find these individuals. They need to be trained for that. They need the forensics capabilities. They need to understand how to do the analysis. One of the projects that I recently worked on was with um, Ghana's police, justice sector, organized crime, and prison systems um, to pull together a whole system where they can share information on cases. Because the problem also is, even if you're a police department here, and we see this also in the US, you may be gathering information about the activities of an individual. They might also be operating over here and no one knows about it but it's when you're able to put the full picture together that you can actually pull together cases. But let's say we do that. Let's say that the police are able to do that. They're able to find those individuals. Um, and they're not killed in the process of doing that because they tend to be targeted for going after individuals in these groups. And a case is able to be brought through the justice system. And let's say that the prosecutors have the right laws on the books. So, Frequently in the places where I've worked, what, one of the things that I've done that people don't talk about a lot in, in regards to addressing these issues is security sector reform, justice reform. 
ensuring that you have those structures in place, providing technical capacity building, working with prosecutors, working with um, parliaments to ensure that the right laws are in place to be able to prosecute these particular cases, working on witness protection, judge protection, because even if you're able to bring some of these individuals to um, court, will the judges or their families be killed for even just overseeing it or for the particular ruling that they're going to make. So you need those structures in place to even make sure you get across that initial line. And then let's say, you know, bringing that tool in the toolbox of doing all these reforms and helping the judicial system and et cetera, um, be strong to be able to get a case and be able to have someone prosecuted accordingly for what they do, and they go to prison. And um, prisons, you have two challenges. One is prisons tend to be a location where people become more radicalized, in fact, um, and definitely are not normally looked at as a place where people go for reforms. So you've, you have the first challenge of even if they go there, unless they're for life, they're there for life, they're going to come out and you might have a much worse problem on your hands. So you really need to be looking at the angle of, of what happens when they come out, how do you pull them away, and I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. The other challenge that you have is you're assuming the prisons are actually working as a prison. Uh, when I was in San Pedro Sula, Honduras at the time, they had the highest murder rate per capita in the world. And I was out investigating what, was the, what were the causes of that and what could be done to reform um, or try to address that problem set. And I was sitting in the prison with the, pris uh, the prison in San Pedro Sula um, with the warden, we were talking through the issues. And he said, just to give you an example, technically we're inside the prison. We can barely control this prison. Where you're sitting two days ago, a human head came over the wall and landed where you're sitting. And that's because even though we have these gang leaders behind the walls, they still bring in all their weapons, they're still able to control, and they're still able to operate all their systems. So there's only so much we can do because we don't have the security structures to even protect ourselves to go that extra mile, right? So there are you know, processes in place that also help to ensure within our toolbox, um, even if you want to take the jailing tactic, it's, you, there's a lot of reforms that are not military actions that one needs to do to set up the systems and structures. So I'd like to come back, though, to this question of if someone even was jailed and came out of the system uh, and is not as radical, further radicalized than before, or someone who is in the path of that organization, in that organization operating, et cetera, one of the things we all have to do is step back and ask ourselves in order to address the problem set so why are they doing it in the first place? You can target individuals as much as you want. You can remove them from the problem set. But all you're doing is just buying time. Because what's happening is you're not actually resolving the reason for why people are coming. In, in order to truly address terrorism, extremists, organized crime threats, which all of these, by the way, are becoming more and more interlinked by the day, you have to turn off the source. You have to both turn off the source of the recruitment and you have to provide an off-ramp to the individuals who are inside of it and give them a path forward. Um, and pr primarily when you push very hard on the jailing aspects without reforming, people look at that and think, well, there's no off-ramp for me because if they catch me, that's the end of it. Um, and you're trying to create conditions that are different. 
When we think about why do people do the things they do, I want to highlight a few aspects because I think it is easy for us to say, these people are inhuman, these people are not like me, these, um, these individuals are monsters, etc. These are people that do inhuman acts. Uh, they can start just like you and I. There's, uh, and, and that seems really hard to understand, but I've watched it before, uh, and let's talk about why that is. There are equal access does an excellent categorization of why you start seeing um, groups turn to extremism and terrorism. And the first categorization of what drives this is what's called critical significance. Every human being, psychologically, every single one of us sitting in this room or listening, has a need to feel important. It could be to their family. It could be as high as wanting to be a world leader and everything in between. But everyone wants, to, wants a role to play in society. And in many places, that's not always easy, particularly in places where we see a lot of youth bulges, where lots of youth, high unemployment, can't, can't get jobs, can't get money, can't pay for dowries for marriages, can't, can't take care of your family, um, can't move in, in as an, become an adult in society by being able to, to do those things, or just feel like no purpose. Uh, so critical significance is one element. And I think also many of us can, um, can uh, have an understanding for. The second, which many of us hear about a lot, is grievance, that there's a specific grievance that is driving that individual or that group. The largest grievance that drives individuals is injustice. Uh, it is, and uh, Fatali Mogadam, who is a, both a professor of psychology as well as conflict management at Georgetown University, has an excellent path that he talks about, which is the staircase to terrorism. And you start with, I have a problem. Someone is, I'll use an example of, someone is trying to take my land. I'm going to go to the land office and put in a complaint about someone trying to take my land. They don't listen. Like, they try, they do the process, it's slow, it's ineffective. This person is frustrated, they're like, I've done everything I can. Okay, I'm gonna go to my representative, my local representative. They raise it, they complain about it, this person's taking my land, they're moving on to my land. Nothing changes. They elevate it further. They bring it to the press. They gather other people to get loud about it. Their problem still is not solved. And what this staircase that he talks about is, you try all the right ways, and I think all of us have probably felt a moment in your life where you're like, I'm trying to do this the right way, and yet I'm not getting results. So they, they take it one step up, and each step they go, it becomes more assertive. Unto the point where someone arrives at the point where they see there is nothing I can do to get my problem solved or get attention besides violence. It's not something I want to do. I, I feel I have no choice. One of the things that's important to understand about injustice and grievance is many people think that to solve that problem, it must be about, you know, give people jobs. They're unhappy because they don't have money and they don't have something to do. That can have an element of that. I'm not dismissing that. 
But what we have found, it's not poverty. There's lots of poverty all over the world, including in the United States. We would have a lot more terrorists and violent extremists if poverty was the driver. What it is, is it's the injustice behind poverty. So is this group doing just fine while my group is not? Why does that group get access to jobs? Why does that group get access to high-level people? Why does that group, when they bring a complaint to the media or their representatives, why did they get a response and I don't? Why did, why did they have more money when I do the exact same job as them? It's that, it's that injustice which creates the friction that drives people forward. The, so we have critical significance, grievance, Ident and then the third one is identity threat. A feeling that, some, that another is coming after your group. Um, eat, and, and that can be socially, culturally, politically, economically, uh, physically, all of these different categories. Uh, and it is important to understand that when you feel your group is under threat, it registers in your brain the exact same way as someone physically threatening you. It's, this isn't an abstract concept. Your, your biological response is exactly the same. And that's because we've been wired from long time ago um, <laughs> that you need to be able to protect yourself and protect your group. And this is why, when, particularly when you have issues where people are becoming very polarized or not having contact with each other, you, you can start to get um, perceptions and concerns about threats, and I'll come back to, to why that happens. Uh, the fourth reason um, why, uh, why that dri drives people is social exclusion. And that feeds into also the identity threat feel. All human beings need other human beings. That is, that is actually a physical need. Um, and that's, again, wired because we need others for our survival. Um, and what happens is if you're socially excluded, that also can play into the identity threat element. You know, the more people get socially excluded, the more they can start thinking in their mind what might be happening with the other. And there is an underlying factor that's important for all of us to understand here, which is the extreme prevalence of disinformation in the world right now. Uh, it, it, which, and frequently there's disinformation in many environments to deliberately convince people that their identity is threatened, to deliberately convince them that they're being excluded in order to recruit people into terrorist organization or extreme, this is any type of extremist groups. Gangs do it as well, et cetera. So it happens in politics. Um, so it, it, it's very, the disinformation is a really uh, scary tactic um, that we're seeing because it used to be that we could have conversations around facts uh, and be able to, to draw people in with that, but that is, we're losing that as a tool. So that's kind of the social dynamics for why people do this. And then also there's just individual dynamics. I asked a um, colleague, who, I was, who works with reforming Al-Qaeda prisoners, um, what the common characteristic is of the individuals that he works with. And I've asked this also of others that have worked in prisons to, to do reform um, programs. And, he, and everyone says this thing, there, there's, there's no one common path. That is the hardest thing about addressing these issues. You have to get at it from many different angles in order to ensure you can try to catch people along the way. 
But the thing that he said was the common, the common characteristic was a challenge with just figuring out how to move forward with life. You know, hits a challenge, you know, a breakup in a marriage, loses a job, uh, trying to figure out what they're supposed to do next. Some people are better at just being like, okay, this was horrible, I'm going to move on. The others of us know friends or family that they just can sometimes get a little stuck and need some extra help. Um, and this is why you see actually social workers are one of the most critical um, tools for addressing uh, like getting ahead of this path because they can identify people who are already along this, along this path and help them solve their problems, basic day-to-day -day problems. Um, when I was working on reintegrating former militants um, back into their communities in, the D in Congo, um, I would ask, you know, we would have a process where we asked them, why did you do this? You know, why did you join these groups, et cetera? It was part of forming reconciliation between the communities. And some were like, because uh, I had to, because they put a gun to my head, or they threatened to kill my family, or I had to because I needed to feed my family, I needed the money. Uh, everyone had kind of a different decision um, behind their path. So one of the things when we look at pro solving this problem set is we have to remove our emotion. <laughs> we have to remove our emotion and actually get into their emotions um, and better understand where they're coming from. And once you analyze that, you can design your interventions to be able to address that. So I'm going to give you a couple quick examples before I, um, I close and open up for questions, which is when we come back to those buckets, for example, of, um, of uh, for example, let's start with like critical significance. What can one do? In the development world, uh, frequently we would do things like youth engagement projects or connecting um, youth and older leaders together to help them, like pull them into society, give them a role in society, give them a role to play. When, as I was speaking earlier about this um, program that I was doing to integrate militias back in their communities, an unintended consequence, I couldn't figure out we did a whole process where the communities and the uh, former combatants determined what their values were together as a community and how they would work together and live together moving forward. I was like, and the results we were seeing was, were amazing. What we saw was that these former militants who were terrorizing the communities turned into community leaders. They took their role, see, they were joined a lot of these groups also because it gave them such critical significance. They were leaders coming into communities. They could do whatever they wanted when they were in a militia. What happened is they came in with these new values and they became leaders in the communities around those values, saying this is what we stand for. They kind of like mini police people's behaviors um, to, to make sure that they were abiding by the new positive values. But they took on this positive role in their community. This is some of the things we do. We'll, we'll do that. We'll um, also uh, do different activities to help build um, leadership. Economic growth, training, economic growth and jobs can also play that role by helping to give them resources so they can move forward and can build a life together. Not because money in itself is the problem. It's using it as a tool to build their ability um, to build a life for themselves um, within their community. Uh, when we look at grievances, 
What we would do is analyze the grievances in the area. If it's injustice over, um, over between different particular groups, uh, access issues, we would work on rights groups. If it's grievances, a frequent grievance around the world is against governing structures. Um, their government, their government is not cutting it. Their government isn't working for them. It's working against them. So what we would do is we would partner government with community teach the government how to talk to people, engage, learn, be responsive, but also bring the community in so they could understand where to truly hold that government accountable or not. And some of the things you would see uh, with programming I would do, for example, is you might see me supporting the building of a school or a road um, or a lot of agricultural projects, um, but it's not, that's not the end game. We're doing that because there is a particular grievance in place that we're looking to address. And this is why a lot of people don't hear about the other elements in the toolbox of how to counter terrorism and violent extremism. Because also some of it uh, needs to be done quietly. You know, I can't go into a community and say, I'm here to stop terrorists, um, let's do this, because <laughs> it doesn't go over very well when you're working in extremely insecure environments and you put your partners and everyone else at at, at risk as a result of that. But you, you have that in your end game at the end of the day, and everyone you're working with understands it. But what everyone sees is a, is a school, um, for example. Uh, we'll do things like sports events. People would always say, why would you support you know, youth projects, bringing kids together with, over soccer? How valuable can that really be? Well, I'm like, that's actually a really critical tool for helping to build resilience against, by building social networks, bringing different groups together who normally wouldn't engage with each other, get at the social ex exclusion element, um, build in different groups so you're not dealing with as much fear of identity threat, but also you're teaching skills about leadership through sports. We would bring government officials to these events and have them post it and use it as ways to make connections and address grievances. So it may look like a soccer game, but yet it's actually used in many different strategic ways to be able to get at that. Uh, the other element I'll say is when you're looking at social exclusion, uh, there is a very powerful program that, um, that I managed in Mali in an area where there was high, very high recruitment into Al-Qaeda. Um, and it was extremely isolated area. And we had a hypothesis that social exclusion was what was driving the ability to recruit in those areas. So what we did is we went, we went in, it was very scary because no one went in normally, and, and when, uh, when the team went in, they said, oh my gosh, thank God, someone wants to talk to us. Um, it was completely the opposite of what everyone had thought because they were so nervous about this area. Um, and what we did was we, we connected them with others in the neighboring communities to do things like have um, uh, radio listening clubs and listen to the news and learn digital literacy, media literacy, listening to what's going on, learning how to interpret it for your own means so you're not as open to or susceptible to manipulation or make your own opinions. But also, it built those relationships. And we saw that even in a four-month period, we mapped how many social connections those individuals had and their tendencies towards certain violent extremist behaviors and then did the same at the end. And by building those networks, we were able to see an incredible diminishment in those attitudes just in this short period of time. So I'll finish up with um, 
In addition to addressing the drivers, in addition to trying to create the tools for individuals to, to uh, get the resources they need, whether it's social workers, we work, have worked with religious leaders, trying to make sure you can catch people, We've done a lot of trainings with parents, uh, mothers to be able to identify when children or family members might be going down a certain path, how do we get the resources for them. There's also the aspect of turning off the support for those, the physical support for those organizations. So in our toolboxes, also things, as George mentioned, sanctions, for example, uh, and making sure the money cannot flow to those organizations. I did a, a large amount of programming in West Africa around organized crime. And as we were doing that research, what we found was we were like, if you would like to reduce, uh, reduce the presence of jihadist, al-Qaeda, uh, and ISIS-related groups in West Africa, the number one thing you can do is actually turn off illicit cigarette trafficking. Uh, because there would, what was happening is these cigarettes were coming up through the ports. Uh, in order to transit from the southern ports in West Africa through the north over to Europe, they would have to pay off access to these extremist groups. And they were making a ton of money from it. And illicit cigarettes are something that there's a lot of paper for, so it's easy to prosecute. It's also the same groups that run drugs, which there's not a lot of paper for. So if you go, if you go after the illicit cigarette smugglers, you're actually hitting the same, the same groups. We also found that um, gold, we were also saying gold is the number one way that money is being laundered through the region for these groups internationally and that groups were coming uh, to actually pick up gold, launder their money through gold, and transit it over to Dubai. So we're like, if, you, if we can work with Dubai to put on pressure to actually check uh, where the gold is coming from in advance of when it arrives and put in re restrictions, we can actually ensure that that gold is not being used for money laundering purposes. So you look at some of those elements and, and just figure out, and these are all things we do, particularly through development programs and others, Capacity building of borders, capacity building of judges, capacity, uh, changes to legislation. All these things which don't sound very sexy, but actually are absolutely critical for ensuring that you can turn off the resources of these organizations. So I'll finish with, there is this large toolbox that we have. And as I started in the beginning, you know, criticizing some of the targeting elements, and whatnot, there is a time and a place for that. And it's, and it's when you see places like uh, when I was working in Afghanistan or in Colombia, um, when you're trying to create the space to be able to do some of these interventions. So, uh, you know, the program that I was working with, we were in forward operating bases where they were, the US military was surging, they would clear an area and our teams would go in right away to bring in an appropriate government presence and help to address some of the grievances that were on the ground. Working in Colombia in the areas that they partnered with the FARC, the Colombian government would come in and clear and we'd support them in being able to start to be able to get in there and address those issues. So there are ways to be able to couple the elements together and every context is completely different depending on what's driving those individuals and the context around it. It's just that we as a community need to make sure when we're thinking about how to address terrorism or violent extremism that we're looking at the whole ecosystem around it and then designing all of our interventions to be able to tackle it from many angles in order to be the most effective that we can be. And I'll pause there. Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you very much, Stacia. Uh, very interesting, because oftentimes we think more in terms of, uh, of physically going after these people than trying to help them. Um, I usually, while they're collecting uh, some questions from our, our group, um, I usually use this opportunity to ask uh, the first question. Um, you know, in the developing world, a lot of times the population is very youthful. It's, um, you know, sometimes 50% or more of the population is under, under 20 or something like that. And uh, a lot of times these people are fairly well educated, but they, life seems hopeless to them. What is the role of that uh, dynamic in the ability of terrorists to recruit yes. you know, from these societies? Thank you. Yes, we see this in a lot of um, locations where you're seeing sometimes 70% of the population being youth. Um, and truly, and it's a frequent theme that I hear in places, it's hopeless. It's hopeless because our government doesn't care about us, they're not responsive, there's no jobs for me, there's, for whatever reasons. I was just out in um, Gaza a few weeks ago uh, where the blockade has been in place for 14 years and people generally are not allowed to leave nor is much allowed in. And, you know, youth were saying to me, youth that had not been able to vote since 2008, youth were saying to me, why, why should I be... I literally have no path forward. There's no path for this ever to end. Uh, what do you want me to do? I'm just sitting here. Uh, and it's, it's a very, uh, that, that is a significant grievance, right, in itself, right, that hopelessness. And what we try to do in, our, in the programming I've done is figuring out where can you open up pathways to be able not, not just instill hope, instill reality for what they can achieve within their context. But if we don't do that, uh, it, is, it is ripe for explosion. And even when I was out in Gaza, um, you're starting to see like murmurings of ISIS uh, starting, this is, this is exactly what groups like ISIS look for, a group of people who see no path forward um, and are able to easily exploit them against that. So, this is one of the things we have to be looking for. Um, and I think there, need, there needs to be, particularly in a lot of societies, there's a lot of um, you know, elders who are influencers and then everybody else. And we're trying to find ways to make those connections to be more strong and build, build them in to see a path forward rather than just these are the same people who are here all the time and they'll never listen to me or talk to me. It's a very broad question, but I think one that's really important. Do you have adequate resources to make this approach work? Uh, <laughs> never enough <laughs> uh, is always the answer. I mean, it's, it, could be, it could be limitless, but to be honest, it is feasible to have adequate resources. Whether we are resourcing adequately is another question. So for example, uh, most people in the US believe that 7%, 7 or 8% of uh, our budget goes to foreign aid. It's less than 1%. Uh, the thing that I love as someone who works on these issues and as someone who's also very fiscally conservative with resources is you can achieve so much. It, some of these things do not cost as much. Sometimes it's as much as just getting good advisors in to help someone figure out how to recon reconfigure their systems, right? It can be as easy as just some additional people power or youth programming or, um, you know, just helping people get off get off the ground. So in terms of, you know, and the US military actually has come out in the last couple of years with statements um, being very clear that they're like, you're resourcing us, you know, 
they'll always take resources, but you're resourcing us enough. You need to be resourcing this more because we need these types of interventions to turn it off. Like we can keep like holding the dam a little bit, but we need it actually, the water source to be, to be turned off. And so there's been a lot of collaboration on that. But unfortunately, I think, you know, on the Hill, there's still, um, challenges with being able to increase the resources because people think, oh, foreign aid, it's just something that people do to be nice, when in fact, I went into foreign aid because I'm all about our national security. Um, and that's something that I hope, hope, hope we can continue to change that perception. <laughs> it's one that I think uh, kind of gets at the heart of a lot of this. Who actually brings your group in? The government? How long do you stay? How do you measure success and decide on where to go or when or when when to go there? Hmm. That's those are all easy questions. Um, I, okay. try, I try to sort out the easy ones. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'll I'll start with. So it depends on the situation, uh, depending on depending on where we're working. So for example, in my last assignment, I um, it was I was working in Mauritania and which has very high, the, heart, the highest uh, recruitment um, into Al-Qaeda uh, in the world. And we were trying to work with the, the religious leaders there who are also known as being the most um, influential and respected in the world in regards to Islam. And at first they were like, what are you gonna help us with? Like, you can't, you know, what are you really gonna be able to help us with you coming in from the outside or whatnot? It took a little bit of convincing. Um, we're like, we can help you. We can help you learn how to engage with the population. We can teach you conflict mediation at a community level so that um, recruiters don't exploit conflicts on the ground. This is what you'll see. You'll have community issues or family issues and they exploit that into recruitment. We'll, we'll help you with communications to better communicate with, your, um, with the populations. And it took a year but we convinced them and we're like, this is your project. We're here to support you. We're not gonna, we don't wanna tell you what to do. And then they became such advocates of it. Even when it ended, they, they funded it themselves and kept going with it. So sometimes there's a little bit of audience, you know, talking to your audience. You don't ever wanna do anything that's, that the stakeholders don't want to do. That's a really important process. This is not about imposing something on someone. It's about, supporting people in analyzing and understanding the problem that's in front of them and how can we be most helpful to them in achieving that for that context. So you have to really go in with no assumptions um, about what you're gonna do or how you're gonna do it or be ready to change all of them. In terms of measuring success, it can look very different. The largest um, challenge when we're looking at um, violent extremism and terrorism uh, evaluation of those types of programs, when you're looking at kinetic military operations, you can look at you know, how many people we arrested, et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to prove, did these people not become a terrorist because of what you did, okay? But there's some actually very advanced thinking that's going into this. Um, the, what we can do is we can use research to test and ensure we understand why people are doing what they're doing and you measure progress against that. So if, it's, if people are extremely unhappy with their government and that's one of the major grievances, you start measuring how are people feeling about their government? Is it getting better? Your hypothesis is if that grievance goes 
down, then uh, they're less likely um, to engage in this behavior. Or like I was mentioning the case in Mali where we looked at if their social networks go up, will those tendencies go down? Rand actually um, has some really innovative approaches right now where not only do we test against those characteristics, but they look at actually the lessons from suicide prevention. Uh, in, the, the, in measuring suicide prevention programs, they know the characteristics of individuals that make them more likely um, to commit suicide. So they measured that before the program and then after, and they can say, like, we've been able to change these characteristics of the individual, um, which should make them less likely based off of our, based off of our research. Thank you. Um, we have several people have asked for a specific example that they could give us of where these tools have been successful in turning around a situation. Mm -hmm. So I would say, um, uh, I would say a couple of examples. I'm just making a note to myself. So I gave the previous example where definitely we saw the decrease in um, Al-Qaeda recruitment in the areas where we were working in Mali. Mm -hmm. Also saw that pushback in Eastern Mauritania. I can say we did very rigorous research in the tribal areas of Pakistan where we were working and, um, and, and learned a lot from that. What we found was in the areas where we, where we did provide assistance to address grievances, particularly grievances of services um, from the government, where we worked with the government to help to be responsive to that, tribes would change their allegiance to be supportive of the, of the government of Pakistan or change away from the, from, uh, from the Taliban in those areas, but only if they could it, only if they had the security to be able to do that. So, and this is something that's, that's, this is why it's so important, this security sector reform, ensuring you have security, the systems and the structures to keep people safe. Because even when people want to make the decision to be able to walk away or not support a group, you need to make sure that they can live with that, physically live with that decision. But when we saw in the areas where they had their own, um, uh, tribal militias or strong government military presence that was strong and you intervened with these types of interventions, then you would, uh, you would see the tribes come out and change, change allegiance and, ex and explain and be very explicit that that's why they were doing that. Um, but it is, it is, you know, I think it's coming back to when I was saying earlier, we have to stop or, you know, remove our judgments and remove our emotions and try to understand their emotions. Um, one of the things, you know, people will look at, for example, ISIS in Syria. And, you know, once ISIS comes into an area, you either have to leave or be with ISIS um, in order to live. And when we're trying to work with former members of, or, or get people out of these groups, the problem is our, our laws that are in place for actually being able to do that. So I cannot, none of us can actually, provide any direct material support to a terrorist or a terrorist organization. How do you juggle that when you're trying to get someone out? How do you juggle that in a space when ISIS controlled the entire town? And you, you, and you, can, you can actually do the analysis to find out who is a true affiliate or not, but the problem is 
that they'll say, oh, well, that area, like, they were a declared member of ISIS, and you're like, well, yes, everyone declared themselves as a member of ISIS to not be killed when they came into their town. So this is a real challenge when we're operating in this space. Um, we can do things like connecting former members who've left to current members, but in, in terms of, for example, many of you may know um, the Chibok girls who were kidnapped uh, many years ago in Nigeria. <sighs> Sorry, I had to sigh for a moment because uh, when they were when they were let go, finally, we wanted to be able to provide support to them. It took over a year to get the legal approval to do so. The argument was that they could have been turned into Boko Haram once they were kidnapped, and we couldn't prove whether they were or were not anymore. And the only approval we got after a year was to work with their children. We couldn't even work with them. And so, and part of this comes from a, a, a public, per, public perception of like everything that's working with the terrorists is bad. And it's certainly like you need to have that, that mindset on. But for example, there's no carve out for any types of peace activities to try to get people out of groups. When I worked in Nepal and the Maoists joined the government, so they dropped their arms, they signed a peace agreement I still could not work with them, even though all the things that we had designated them as a terrorist group for, they were no longer doing. There was not a clear path to get them off of the designation list. And so they could be in the room with us. I couldn't give them tea. I couldn't like advise them, but like this is, this is what we deal with in our context. There's a big movement actually on the Hill to try to do carve outs when you, to be able to have people um, be able to engage once a group has stopped terrorist activities um, in order to try to keep moving things along a positive path, but it's, it's a challenge. But aren't there just some terrorists that are so feared or so hated that by their po in their population that uh, targeting makes good good sense? I mean, yeah. I mean, sometimes sometimes it is, um, and I, I won't uh, dismiss that at all. In fact, I remember when I was in Pakistan and the drone started um, in Waziristan, which at you know at the time the U.S. was not taking credit for, but you know everyone can figure that out. So, um, <laughs> but but I thought I had teams operating in Waziristan, uh, and I asked them. How are you? What is the public perception of this, et cetera? And they were like, thank God. I mean, thank you. These, I mean, these people are not, these are not the people who are reconcilable, okay? These, are, these, these people in these particular locations they were targeting are the people you're just, I'm the first to say, they're just some people that you will not be able to, to pull off that path. You, but what we need to do is do the best we can to remove as many off that, keep them from getting on the path, remove them from that organization, and, and then you're left with what you know you should resource against in order to, in order to target in that way. And here's someone to ask if there's an identifiable trigger of some type that, you know, so this lack of a role or grievances, et cetera, turns into violence. Is this something that you can identify that there's a certain point when it switches over? <laughs> I'd like to say that there is. Uh, in talking to people who've interviewed uh, individuals, it's very, it's very individual, the path. Sometimes, sometimes it's a dream, as, as minimal as a dream. 
that that has just pushed someone to decide like and this is very pop in the Middle East like dreams are very important um, for example sometimes it is just a personal matter that that puts someone over the edge or just the fact that they've been dealing with an issue for for a decade and it's still not getting better and I think we've all had moments you just wake up and you're like, ah, I can't, I can't deal with this situation anymore. But everyone's trigger is slightly different because you and I might be dealing with the same situation and I might become way more frustrated faster than you would. I will say one of the things that's very, that is, does influence the triggering um, is someone's psychosocial state. So trauma has an impact on people's abilities to modulate their emotions and their behaviors. And, uh, and the more traumatic the environment that someone is in, the more likely that they're going to escalate faster because of that. And even, I think, all of, we look at this, you know, we also do programming in the US, for example. I mean, everyone is traumatized in some way, shape, or form over the last two years for various reasons. You know, you see how that can manifest itself, even just an exhaustion of wanting, to, you know, of just kind of trigger responses or just, you know, quick emotions when you might not have been that way before. So you have a combination of that. Adverse childhood events can also have an impact um, on reducing someone's resilience. Um, we talk about building resilience. So it's very individual, and this is why we have to target, we have to address these issues from both an institutional social level as well as at an individual level, like having people who are also looking at the individuals and helping to shape them within that context at the same time. Good, good mentors, good, good social workers, um, et cetera. Here's a question I should have uh, noticed and asked very early on. Uh, can you explain the difference between a terrorist and an extremist? <laughs> yes. So, well, that's a great question. Uh, terrorists, extremists, and insurgents. That's always that's always a fun fun one. Uh, it depends who you're asking. So sometimes I use both use the language. We we moved to talking about. I use terrorists in this conversation because most people use the term terrorism, uh, but most of us who work in this field uh, more use the term violent extremist um, because it's someone who has an extremist um, perspective and is choosing to use violence to enact that. Um, and so, and we feel like it describes better the process. Because also you can, I've worked with individuals and I'm like, listen, you can have an extremist viewpoint. All I'm asking is Let's just focus on not using violence to, to obtain your objective, right? And that's, that's really a goal, particularly when you work with current members and you're trying to do de-radicalization. Can we just get to the point where you, you feel like violence is the only way to solve this issue? Um, when you talk about insurgents, those are people who will use terrorist activities, terrorist activities in order to hold, like actually hold and govern a territory. So that's slight. It's a terrorist who holds it. Insur terror insurgents are terrorists. Terrorists, all terrorists aren't insurgents. So, <laughs> but violent extremists covers it all. <laughs> it's complicated. It's very complicated. Let me read a couple of questions here at once because they're, they're closely related. One is how much of an obstacle is our dominant patriarchal system to gaining access for the work you described? And the other one is by youth, we seem to mean the young unemployed men. What strategies do we have to help women with the limited option to improve their outcome in society? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will start, I mean, 
In terms of the patriarchal system, I'll say it's less, that is less an issue to get the resources, I would say, but it certainly is a challenge to ensure the right voices are at the table. Um, and I'll also say that that also creates frictions and challenges as well as issues of being most effective. If you're missing out on a, on a whole population's voices, um, you're gonna be less effective in what you're doing. Now, I, I'm glad this question was asked because I don't always mean young men and this is actually one of the assumptions that people make. Uh, they assume that, that it is young men and, Frequently it, it is, it's not to say it isn't, but actually more and more you are seeing women, women play roles, they just play different types of roles, so they may not always be as prominent, right? They might be playing a supporting role to a family member who is, per, who is participating in these activities. You might not see them on the front lines, but they're still there, they're providing support, resources, et cetera. But you're also seeing women fighters. Um, and in fact, more and more, and particularly because people don't suspect them. Uh, because of those assumptions. So they actually make some of the best, the best uh, people to be able to, to recruit. Um, and they also, we, we've done, a, like in my past, we've done a lot of work with mothers, in particular because we know how influential they are across societies, um, both sometimes negatively influential and sometimes positively uh, influential. So by engaging them directly, that's actually one of the key programs that I've done in multiple places. It's one of the most effective ways because they can be really a linchpin um, one way or another uh, to be able to address. And we give them the tools of not, you know, what are the things you might identify in the people around you that might get you concerned about the path they're going on? What's your next, like, here's what you can do next if you see that. Here's how you approach that. Here's how the effective tools you can use. So that, it's actually uh, frequently our main target audience because of the, the influence that women have in, in society. And continuing with the easy questions. Uh, <laughs> The four traits you listed seem to apply to extremists in this country as well as abroad. Yes. How can these methods be used in working with the problems that this country has? I'm really glad you asked that question. Um, and in fact, uh, we did a, a brief for Homeland Security where we laid out um, these four characteristics and we were like, I don't know, where people have issues of feeling significant, isolated, Identity threat, grievances. I mean, I saw this six years ago. I saw kind of the path we were going on based off of, you know, seeing uh, other countries. Um, and we can do the same things. So we, I mean, we, it needs to be a cohesive package. We need to address, there are injustices in the U.S. that need to be discussed and ideally addressed. There are issues of true grievance around um, economic growth about the haves and the have-nots. Um, there's, there's rural-urban divides, there's the political divide is getting worse. Um, and so some of the things we're doing, for example, at um, the Carter Center is we are bringing people together in diverse networks across political spectrum, um, as well as rural-urban, socioeconomic, et cetera, around issues that we can agree upon. Let's not talk anymore about what we can't agree upon. The list is too long right now. So let's actually talk about what we can agree upon. And the momentum we are getting is, gives me hope every day. Um, we, uh, we agree on um, not using violence, that we don't want our, that we agree that we are afraid 
um, of what's happening and we are exhausted. We all agree, no matter everyone who's in those meetings, everyone is afraid and exhausted. No one wants to keep going down this path. And that is a powerful tool for bringing people together and recognizing commonality, even in the most diverse of structures. So we're working to bring people together to say, we all agree on not using violence. We all agree we're exhausted. We all agree we want safe and secure elections. And let's work together about what that looks like for all of us, um, because we all love our country. And, and, and we, can, we can work on this together, but it is, the most important thing we need to do in order to address that is start with an acknowledgement of where we are, an acknowledgement of the true risks that we face. But I always end with like, the good news is there's so much we can do to be able to arrest the path that we're on. And it even just starts with conversations with our neighbors that are truly about listening and truly about understanding and not about convincing. Um, and the more we're doing to tr teach people how to do that, the better we can be and recognize that we don't need to be afraid of or angry at others. We just need to start with like, we, we all don't want to be here together. So, um, so and all of you can play, help to play a role in that. Um, that's the beauty is you don't need to be like me who's bringing these experience from overseas. Every single person who's listening or is in this room can play a role in helping to um, bring these uh, discussions to the table and helping others to understand kind of where we are and how we might be able to move forward. Well, this is, this is clearly a topic where we could take a lot more time than an hour. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're at the end of our hour. Just a personal question that came from the audience. Where did your passion for this work come from? Oh, that's, that's a good question. So uh, when I was in middle school, uh, I wore a back brace for scoliosis, and it um, really intrigued me how people just treated me differently by the way uh, I looked. And I'm like, I'm the same person inside, and yet, why are people's behaviors so different? And that's how I started getting involved in identity-based conflict and understanding why is it that people mobilize around someone's, whether their ethnicity or their religion or how they look, what, what is the psychology behind that? Um, and how do, we, how do we understand that better so we can reduce, reduce violence in the communities where we're living? So that's, that's how it started. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Stacia George. If you missed part of this program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimbladu. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.